invite you to open scripture this morning to 1st Timothy chapter 4. We'll be reading from verse 1 to 11. You may find this passage in your pew Bibles on page number 1029. For the sake of getting the context, actually we will start reading with chapter 3 verse 14. But our message this morning will be focused on chapter 4 verse 1 through 11. Here's the word of the Lord for us in our hearts this morning. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is a church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers... You will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life, and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Amen. Let's bow our heads and ask God to give us His Spirit to understand these instructions for our hearts this morning. Oh, Father, how grateful we are that you continue to instruct us. Father, how grateful we are that you have revealed yourself to us and that you have gathered us into your household to hear your truths. Lord, we ask that you would teach us how to behave ourselves in your household. Lord, we pray through your Holy Spirit that you would reveal yourself to us. Convict us, correct us, admonish us, encourage us, edify us through your word. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we are in Sermon 10 of a series entitled, God's House, God's Rules. A series of sermons going through the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Last week, we finished the passage that addressed the qualifications for deacons. 
and we're passing over the last few verses of chapter 3, not because they're unimportant. Actually, they're so important that I preached the first sermon in the series on the last few verses of chapter 3, which we read today for the purpose of context. Paul says, after giving instructions about church leadership, about how to uh, look for overseers and what does it mean to live a life that qualifies us to be leaders in the church, after Paul talks about what it means to, to live a life that qualifies us to serve God's church, Paul says this very interesting verse. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you these instructions. Which instructions? About how to choose godly leadership in the church. And about all the instructions that Paul is giving to Timothy in this letter. I'm writing all these instructions. Why? So that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is a church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is a purpose statement for the entire letter of 1 Timothy. I encourage you, if you want to go back to the sermon that we preach on those, these few verses, go back about 10 weeks ago, and the sermon, you may find it online in our, on our website. Paul writes to Timothy, so that this young pastor will know how to instruct people, how to instruct his members, how to behave themselves in God's household. Now, is the church important for our Christian lives? Is the church important for your Christian life? Or is it optional? If it's important, and I see some of you nodding your head, if it's important, let me ask you, why is it important for you? It's not uncommon today for many self-professed Christians to have a rather low view of the church. And even those who have a higher view of the church, even for them, the best reason they can think of why the church is important is the following. They say, it's important because it helps us mature in the faith. Yet it seems that for Paul, he had a higher view of the church. It's not simply important for our maturity, although that is very true. The church is important because it's God's household, the pillar and foundation of truth. Friends, to be saved means that one is adopted into God's family. To put our faith in Christ means that we're brought into God's household. To be truly reconciled with God is to be reconciled with God's people in such a way that we form a new family, a new community. To be reconciled with God vertically means to be reconciled with God's people horizontally. As a matter of fact, to be reconciled with God vertically without being reconciled with God's people horizontally should lead us to question 
the authenticity of our spiritual experience with God. So yes, the church is important for our salvation experience. Not as a cause of our salvation, but as a fruit of our salvation. How we live our Christian lives with other believers matters. Let me, let me go even a step further. If we live our Christian lives with other believers matters tremendously for our salvation. By beginning to live our Christian lives with other, others in love, in covenant, in commitment, we actually live out the experience of being God's household in very concrete ways. As we live in our bond of love, we get to display the truth of the gospel. We get to be a showcase of what the power of Christ does in our lives. Not simply to save us from our sin, but also to adopt us into God's family so that now we actually live out a new family life in concrete, practical ways. That's why the church is important because the church is God's household. Friend, you cannot be saved and not be a part of God's household. Do you understand how that works? You can't really truly experience God's salvation and, and then think that joining God's household, becoming part of the people of God, is an optional thing that you get to choose. You don't get to choose that if you choose and to respond to Christ. It happens automatically. And friends, the local church is a real display of what God's family is really like. You want to know what God's household is like? Go and join their family time on a weekly basis. Go into their family room experience and see what do they do when the, when the family is gathering together. What, what are they like? Church is a display of what the power of the gospel does in our lives to save us from our sin and to adopt us into God's family. But the church is not just a display of the power of the gospel to reconcile people to God and to one another. The church is also given the role of guarding the truth in real-life settings. John Stott said the following about the local church. The local church is the main arena in which the unremitting struggle between truth and error is fought out. The church is the main arena in which the unremitting struggle between truth and error is fought out. In other words, the church is called to discern between truth and error. The church is called to discern between those who are true followers of Christ and those who only pre pretend to be so. Occasionally I hear Christians have such a low view of the church that it actually causes them to have a low view of God and of Christ and a higher view of themselves, of their independence, of their self-confidence, of their self-assurance. However, friends, if we have such a trivial view of the church that it leads us to treat lightly the regular assembling of God's people, I'm afraid we forget that the church is not man's idea. 
God commanded people to gather regularly for the purpose of upholding the truth, of proclaiming the truth, of guarding the truth. And by doing so, we worship God, we edify one another, we serve other people. But through all these aims, we're called to display the truth of the gospel in real life settings of what God's family looks like. So people who say, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And I heard someone say that about two weeks ago. He was not a member of our church. Praise God. I would have some issues to really talk to. But someone who, was, who, who, who thought they were Christians, but they said, I, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And another fellow Christian said, that's right, that's right, you don't have to. And I was just broken in my heart because when I hear those kind of comments, it tells me both of those people who claim to be Christians may actually have a false view of what Christianity is all about in the first place. Yet often, critics who, have, who are afraid, who just reject the, the church, may have a point. They see so much hypocrisy in the church that they're actually afraid of getting worse by coming to church than, than getting better. They have been more hurt than aided in their search for the living God. And this is not their fault entirely, but ours also. Because we have often failed to follow God's instructions closely about what it means to live as a church. We allow for hypocrites to live inside the body without confronting their hypocrisy. And yet the church is called to be the pillar and foundation of truth. The people who are members of God's church are challenged to be followers of the truth, committed to the truth. Otherwise, we, the church, give a false display of the truth we proclaim to follow. And no wonder that outsiders are disappointed and turned off. So is the church important for our Christian lives? Should the church be important for your Christian life? Yes. It is important not just for our maturity, although that is true. It is important for deeper reasons than that, because the church is the main arena in which the struggle between truth and error is fought out. Yes, it is important for our salvation, because the church is called to keep the truth free from error. And when this truth is proclaimed clearly, it changes people from the inside out, and one clear fruit of that change is a new spiritual family, God's household, displayed through the life of the local church. That's why the church is important. Because of these two fundamental roles of the church are clarified by Paul, now we're ready to hear what Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4. How should one behave in God's household? Three things we're going to look at. The first one, the certainty that some will fall out. The certainty that some people will fall out. Look at verses 1 through 5, especially verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith. The beginning of chapter 4 is not very positive. It's somewhat anticlimactic from what Paul 
said at the end of chapter 3 when he said that the church is a pillar and foundation of truth. And now, just a few verses later, he says, some will fall out. That's surprising. That's sad. And Paul gives us a very realistic picture of the nature of the church in the later times. Surprisingly for us and for Timothy, the later times had already arrived in Paul's time. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that the with the beginning or with the coming of Christ, the end times of God's plan of salvation has begun. This means that for the last 2,000 years, we've been living in the later times. We've been living in the age when some are abandoning the faith. We cannot be so naive to assume that everyone who professes faith in Christ will endure to the end. Paul did not have that confidence that everyone who professes to begin the Christian life will actually end it or will actually finish it. This, the Spirit, this is what the Spirit reveals with certainty that some will fall away. A good example is given to us by Paul in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, where Paul said that some have already shipwrecked their faith by failing to hold on to the faith and by rejecting a good conscience. And he gave us two names as examples, Hymnaeus and Alexander. And he tells us they have been handed over to Satan. They were put out of the church. Now, friends, it is sad and terribly painful to see someone abandon the faith. It's painful for a church to have to hand over to Satan such people so they may no longer take confidence of their deceitful self-assurance. Yet we're called to do this difficult task as a way to discern between falsehood and truth. We should understand what the Spirit says, that not everyone who professes to begin the Christian race will necessarily finish it. Friends, Paul said this to a young pastor about his own church, the church in Ephesus. Is it possible that if he were to preach here this morning, he would say the same about us? Is it possible that there's some among us, perhaps even right now this morning, that will never finish the Christian race? We should be concerned about that. We should not think that somehow this danger is not a real danger for some of us. The Spirit emphatically says, with certainty says, that in the later times, some will abandon the faith. And I want to stop and realize that it is very possible that some of those may have been among us or are among us or will be among us at some point in the future. We just have to be that kind of realistic because that's what the Spirit reveals. Now, what should Paul, what is Paul telling Timothy to do to guard against this danger? Well, throughout this letter in our text itself, he says, command and teach these things. 
bring these things to the attention of the brothers. And if you do, you will be a good minister of Christ. Bring up the reality that some will, it's possible that some will abandon the faith. Teach these things. But let's look at the causes. Paul gives us the causes why, why this may happen. Three causes in our text, briefly. Cause number one, look with me to verse one. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Friends, the demonic world is the first cause behind the errors that will lead some people to abandon the faith. Remember, Satan is, is not only the great tempter, tempting people to disobey God, but he's also the great deceiver, seeking to seduce people into error. The demonic world has a keen interest in promoting error and falsehood in order to mislead people from their desires to find the truth. Friend, if you're searching for the truth, please know that there are spiritual forces who seek to mislead you from finding the true God, the creator and owner of the universe. The demonic world has a keen interest to deceive us. The second cause is there's a human cause. Look at verse 2. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars. In other words, the demonic world works through human agents and human philosophies. These false teachers are described by two awful words, hypocritical and then liars, as if one was not enough to describe them. Now, we don't know if they intentionally try to do it, if they know they're, they're deceived, or they may, they may think they have the truth and generally try to teach others that, but nevertheless, they're still teaching falsehood. We don't know exactly what's happening with them, but reality is they are promoting lies, and they pretend to live out the truth, but they're not living out the truth. Like cause number three, there's a moral cause. Look at these, at these false teachers. Their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Uh, the word seared means to burn, in the Greek world, um, the Greek word was kauterizo, uh, which has two meanings. Either have one's conscience branded with sta Satan's stamp, or that word also can mean to, to burn so that they're no longer able to discern truth from falsehood. We have this word in the medical field to cauterize, which means burning a nerve, making it insensitive. The point is that Someone with a seared conscience is no longer able to discern truth from error. And friends, that's why how we live our Christian lives matters so much. Because if we act against our conscience, if we know the truth but act against it willingly and stubbornly, that actually influences us in the future in the ability for us to discern God's truth from error. Our morality, what we do with our conscience, influences greatly our ability to discern God's truth. That's why we should see as no surprise when Paul says in Acts 24, 16, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So these three causes lead people to abandon the faith. The demonic world, the human agents, the false teachers, and then the searing of their conscience. They don't pay attention 
on how, and they don't care much about keeping their conscience clear. Verses 3 to 5 give us actual examples of false teachers in Ephesus. I'm not going to spend too much time on it because false teachers in our day may take different forms. But here's what Paul dealt with um, and what Timothy was supposed to deal with in, in Ephesus. Look at verse 3. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from false foods. Now, this may surprise you as being one version of false teaching. But in Paul's day in Ephesus, it was. There was an, an emphasis on abstinence in marriage and in eating certain foods. Jew some Jewish roots mixed with Greek philosophy that, that thought that matter was evil and corrupt and that we should just focus on spiritual things. And that is an exaggeration of how the Old Testament and how the accounts in Genesis portray the world. God created everything to be good. Yes, it has been corrupted by the fall, but we also believe that God will redeem us and will restore this world and there will be a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And we can talk about why and how to counteract this false teaching in Ephesus, but I'd like to take a different principle for what we see Paul teaching and what we see the danger of what Timothy was going through. There's a powerful principle for us to learn from these false teachers who promoted abstinence from marriage and foods. And here's the point. If you met these false teachers today, they would strike every one of us as being very moral people. If you met them, you would be amazed at the power of their self-control to keep their appetites in check. They would be people who would deny their rights for the sake of religion. Their morality would have been held up incredibly high. And yet, Paul says they are still false teachers. Paul says that they are still false teachers because morality by itself cannot save you. Saying no to your appetites cannot save us. Morality may actually be an enemy of the gospel when we think that what saves us is our morality. Friends, a morality that is not rooted and caused by the gospel of Christ is actually a danger of the gospel. Here's why. People who live a moral life for them, actually, it is more difficult to understand their need for Christ. They think they live a good life. They think by their behavior, by their self-control, that they can impress both God and themselves and others. So for such people who are pretty pleased and satisfied in their morality, to come and tell them that they're broken before God, that they're totally flawed and there's nothing good in them, it is pretty insulting. And yet, that is what the gospel calls us to believe. That nothing in us. We're so broken that nothing in us can actually make it up for God so that we would be saved. There's nothing in us. Friend, if you are visiting us this morning seeking to improve yourself before God, 
but try to follow by trying to follow doing of good deeds you may be disappointed in what you're hearing right now the gospel is a message that you can never improve yourself enough before God on your own actually a key message of the gospel is that unless you see yourself totally bankrupt and unable to please God on your own terms you will never understand the true meaning of the cross of Christ friends Christ died for us because there is no other way that we can make it up to God morality cannot save us only Christ can save us because Christ died in our place as a substitute we were supposed to die to receive the wrath of God no matter how good our lives would be thus we turn from our sin not simply by trying to stop doing the sin but we turn from our sin because we turn to Christ in faith and repentance recognizing our bankruptcy and total moral and spiritual failure friend I encourage you get to know this Jesus because he's the only one who can save us who can save you if you'd like to know more about this Jesus what it means to follow him please talk to one of our members at the end of the service or come and talk to me I'd love to talk to you more about this Jesus because he's the only one who can save us the point is that morality when not rooted in the gospel is not an aid to the gospel but an enemy of the gospel that's why God forbid God forbid that we would seek out to create members in our church who are simply moral people God forbid God forbid that we would be interested in only changing people's outward behavior if they do not understand the gospel and how it creates a change from the inside out because of what Jesus has done for us we mislead people in having a form of godliness but denying its power Paul cautions us of the certainty that some people will abandon the faith because some will be more pleased to change only their outward behavior they will become only cultural Christians Christians by name but people who have not truly understood the nature of the gospel and the change that happens inside our hearts that's why one of the first things we can do as a church dear friends is to make sure that everyone who is a member of this congregation actually has had their hearts changed by the grace of God we should not be pleased that we have members who are just living out in their externals the Christian life we must ensure that people have been converted from the inside out the second thing Paul tells Timothy is teach these truths and then train yourself for godliness look at verse 6 if you point these things out to the brothers you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed what a great encouragement to this pastor Paul says you will be a good minister now by the way that's not talking about being a good clergy as a matter of fact he's not talking about being a good pastor actually the Greek word is the word diakonon it's a word for deacon but in this case it's not the technical word for a for those who hold the office of a deacon it's just referring to those who are good who are servants of Christ all Christians 
are diakonons. All Christians are servants of the living God. Now here's what's going to make us good Christians, good servants of Christ. If we point these things out to the brothers. Friends, this is not just my duty as a pastor to you. This is our duty together to point these things out to one another. Friends, sometimes people try to put serving God, serving the church, doing acts of kindness as issues of, of true service to God. And things that have to do with growing in the truth of God's word as somehow the intellectual stuff that, that only those who are smart really get into. And Paul would not want to divide these two things. Paul says, you will be a good servant of Christ if you teach these truths to the brothers. Oh, how I desire, how I wish that every one of us would adopt this challenge that we would be good servants of Christ by pointing out these truths to the brothers and the sisters. And then look at what Paul says next. A good minister, as a good minister, Timothy is not only to teach others, but he himself is to refuse a false teaching and instead focus on training himself in godliness. Training himself in godliness. Look at verse 8. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. This is nothing against old wives' tales, you know, old ladies. Please, this is just a phrase. This is just a phrase that says the following. It's like when you, grandma, when you're telling stories to your grandchildren, you're making up stories, right? You're making them up. Kids take them for real. You're making them up. Now, there's nothing wrong with that when you do that to children, to tell them about the, the wonderful imagination, imaginative realities of our world. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when we practice the same kind of things when it comes to the issues of the faith. We're giving people false promises. We're telling people versions of the Bible story that is not really true. That's what old wives tales is. It's stories that sound good. They're very imaginative. They're very creative. The story is great. It's just not true. Paul says, have nothing to do with that. Instead, instead, train yourself for godliness. Godliness. What does that mean? Godliness means reverence for God, fear of God. Godly people are God-fearing people. Ungodly people are those who live their lives with no room for God or with little room for God. They don't care about what God might have to say about their lives, about their decisions. They live a life that is centered on themselves it may be a very moral life, but nevertheless, nevertheless, a life where they are at the center. They determine for themselves what is the truth. But godly people have experienced the Copernican revolution of Christian conversion from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. They have heard God's call to renounce ungodliness to renounce their sin and to follow Christ, the one who came to rescue us from our sin. And so such people begin to live a godly life, anticipating on earth the God-centered life of heaven. 
That's what godly people do. They live a God-centered life on earth because they anticipate the God-centered life of heaven. They bring it down to the earth and they say, this is what it looks like. To live a godly life is to live on earth the reign of God. To live a godly life is to flesh out in the practical actions of our daily living the rule of God's kingdom. That's why Jesus taught us in his Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We no longer do what, what we once wanted because we have given our allegiance to the God who saved us. We're not giving our allegiance to God so he can save us. We're giving our allegiance to God because he has saved us. Big difference. Paul told this young pastor to train himself for godliness. The word used for train is a Greek word, gumnazo. We use it all the time for gymnastics or for training out, working out, going to the gym, or getting in shape. That's why the title of my sermon today is Getting in Shape for Godliness. It refers to the regular practices we do by which God grows us in the faith and thus we grow in our loving obedience to God. What does it mean to train yourself for godliness? What does it mean to, to get in shape for godliness? There are certain outward activities that we do. But please understand, each of these activities are not the end of themselves. They are a means of training the heart to grow in godliness, to train the heart to grow in God-oriented affections, to train the heart to grow in God-centeredness. These outward activities put us on the path of God's grace. The spiritual disciplines of regular reading of Scripture, regular times of prayer, regular times of corporate gathering with the saints, of fighting off sin in our lives, of not acting against our conscience, of serving others, of sharing our faith, of memorizing Scripture, and a few other things we could do. These are just uh, some examples. A few weeks ago in our church, in our Sunday school hour, we had a class on spiritual disciplines, one of the seminars that taught us about some of these spiritual disciplines. The point is, these activities are like the exercises of a, of a physical fitness program. The constant repetition of these exercises will produce growth in us. But it's God's grace that actually produces this growth as we put ourselves in the path of God's grace. If we develop habits where we practice these regularly, they will produce in us growth in godliness. Not instantly, but over time. So Paul tells Timothy, train yourself for godliness. But as Paul says in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his purposes. So far we looked at the certainty that some will abandon the faith. And then we looked at the fact that Paul told Timothy what to do about it. To teach the truth and to train himself for godliness. Paul encouraged Timothy to pursue true godliness for the following reason. And here's the third point, the foundation of training for godliness. Even though false teachers were giving, promoting religious rules, 
Now Paul tells Timothy the foundation of true godliness and why we should get in shape for it. Verse 8, godliness has value for all things, holding the promise for both the present life and the life to come. Friends, the, the world tries to trick us, telling us that if we pursue godliness, we're going to miss out on this life. False. That's a devil's trap. That's a devil's lie. Following God and living out the power of the gospel in our lives is beneficial, not just for eternity, but for this life also. I've heard someone say that too much godliness may not be healthy for you. That we need to be temperate and balanced in pursuing godliness. Too much, just like anything else, is too bad for you. Friends, we can never be too godly. And we should never think that somehow we need to pursue balance in our pursuit of godliness. We need to commit ourselves 100% to pursuing this godliness. And what's amazing, Paul told, this Paul told this to Timothy, a pastor. Now, don't you think Timothy was already a pretty godly guy if he was a pastor? Did he meet the qualifications? Did he, did he meet the, 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 what, what made him to be a pastor? I think so. I mean, Paul would have not made him an overseer in that church, a pastor. And yet, Paul tells Timothy, train yourself for godliness. You can never do it too much. You can never do it too much. Godliness is not a destination we arrive at. It's a journey we embark on. Godliness is not a destination you arrive at. It's a journey we embark on. And that's why Paul says, look at verse uh, 9 and 10. For this we labor and struggle. Paul tells us that he himself is doing this. But there's a phrase there for that this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance in verse 9. This is a third letter, third time in this letter where Paul gives this statement. And I think the statement refers to the principle that he said in verse 8 of training for godliness. Why? Because it is beneficial both for this life and for the life to come. And Paul says, this is what we struggle and toil. Paul himself was working hard, was sweating hard to train himself in godliness. Why? Paul says, because we have put our hope in the living God. This is why we work hard. This is why we toil and struggle in our spiritual fitness program, because we have put our hope in the living God. In other words, friends, our hope in the living God is the foundation of our pursuit of godliness. That's why we should pursue it. Putting our hope in the living God does not mean that we can now stand and simply watch what God will do in our lives. Putting our hope in the living God does not mean that our efforts have no more role to play. Putting our hope in the living God should not lead us to sloth or spiritual laziness. No, quite the contrary. It should lead us to respond confidently to pursue this God because He pursued us first. It is because God works in us that we're going to struggle and toil with all our effort in pursuing this godliness. Friends, we live in a time when being fit or staying in shape are high priorities for our society. Because we want to prolong our life on earth. We want to stay in shape. And Paul says, there's nothing wrong with that. Physical shape is of some value. Paul admits it. But there's something even more valuable 
namely to be in shape, to get in shape for our spiritual godliness because the benefits of that is for both this life and the life to come. Right? What's amazing is that we rarely hear, even among Christians, that getting in shape for godliness is a priority for them. We rarely think about our spiritual disciplines with the same zeal as we think about our physical commitments to run or stay in shape or watch what we eat. Friends, what if we start watching what we feed our minds and souls, being discerned about what we read, listen to, or watch as a way to grow in godliness? What if we made a commitment to feed our minds daily with God's Word or to read weekly through a book that is soul-fattening? Or meeting up with another Christian every two weeks to engage in spiritual accountability. Friends, some of us are living sp like spiritual anorexics. We avoid the food. We don't care much about it. And even when we eat it, we just eat a little bite. A verse a day. That's your quiet time. And you hope and think that two, three minutes a day will help you through all the struggles and all the attacks the demonic world has against you to deceive you. We're spiritual anorexics. What if we really started pursuing godliness with the same kind of intensity that an athlete is thinking about pursuing his sports? Parents, those of you who have kids in sports, you're so diligent to take your kids to practices. You want your children to, ex to, to excel in, in sports or in school. What if we pursued our pursuit of godliness with the same kind of intensity of training ourselves, of being disciplined to pursue this godliness? Pray, friends, I pray. I pray that we would learn from the world the kind of zeal they have for physical fitness that we would have for spiritual fitness. And I pray that God will mature us and protect us from falling away from the faith. And as we grow in godliness, we are a display of the truth of the gospel for the world to watch. I pray that as a church, we will be committed to keep one another accountable, to grow and train ourselves in godliness. Let us pray.